Hello and welcome everyone to the Racing with Rob and Roller podcast. My name is Rob Peters and joined as always today by Josh Roller. Uh, Today we have a very special uh, show for you in store today. We will discuss the NASCAR weekend in Kentucky, Formula One at Silverstone, Formula E, uh, finished off its season in New York City. IndyCar was north of the border in Toronto. And we will also have a few rapid-fire moments with uh, F3, F2, ARCA, and Super Formula. So, uh, and as always, we will have our featured paint scheme, upshift, downshift, outstanding performance, and featured racetrack segments. So that's a lot in the show today. So before we even decide to get going, let's uh, go ahead and ask, uh, how was your weekend, Josh? Was it a good weekend? It was a good weekend, for sure. Um, on Friday, I went over to uh, Illinois with my dad, grandpa, and my uh, grandpa's brother. Went to a old tractor show. It was great. I love going there. I love spending time with my dad and my grandpa. I always learn something when I'm over there. And then um, Saturday, it was watching racing, catching up on some races from uh, Thursday and Friday night, and... Sunday, again, watching racing, and I went to go see Spider-Man. All right, sounds like a good weekend for Josh. I watched the Cricket World Cup. That was great, great, great match. It was like a tie, but it wasn't. It was fantastic on almost every way, shape, or form. I'd explain it, but nobody cares. So, the, with that being said, let's go into the other thing, big thing. Well, actually, the Cricket World Cup did happen during the British Grand Prix, which is a great segue into our first topic of the night, which is the British Grand Prix. Lewis Hamilton benefits from Antonio Giovinazzi spin in Valley Corner, which deploys a safety car and allows him to pit while in the lead without losing the lead. This becomes Lewis Hamilton's seventh victory in 2009 and his sixth British Grand Prix victory, making him the all-time winningest driver in the British Grand Prix. He was previously tied with Jimmy Clark uh, and uh, Alain Prost, all at Silverstone for Alain Prost, but uh, Jimmy Clark won several uh, at Silverstone and Brands Hatch and other races. Uh, There was first lap contact between the Haas drivers of Kevin Magnussen and Roman Grosjean, which led to both of their retirements. Uh, it, you know, it, if you're Haas this this weekend, you probably just want to move on with everything. It was a bad week for Haas. It probably is the worst week in their company's history, to be honest with you. Yeah, uh, it's bad. Um, and and uh, we'll talk about this maybe a little bit later when we, when you ask a question from another series. But I'm thinking there might be some changes in Haas in 2020, um, particularly after the this week these past few weeks' performances. Well, I think so, too. I mean, I hate to say it. I hate to admit it because I really like Grosjean. I really like K-Mag. You know, I don't want to see those two split up. I don't want to see those two go away. But for the sake of Haas and for the sake of them, I think it might be time to start looking at someone else, maybe grab some kind of free agent in there. I know Ocon's out there. I know he's a Mercedes driver, but if he can, you know, lure him away from Mercedes... Because I don't know if he's going to replace Botas. I don't even think Botas is going anywhere, so I don't know what... Not that... after the year that Botas has had. I think it was kind of one of those questions like... We, um, like Simon Pagano had in IndyCar. Is this guy going to be back next year? Well, they both stepped up their performance this year and improve, improved that they belong in the seat that they're in. So, um, yeah, I, I think that Mercedes is a pretty set on their, their lineup for next year. But it's you know, like Ocon is a great guy. Definitely could be a potential replacement over there at Haas. Yeah, if, especially if I don't know how much Haas can throw at him to get him out of the Mercedes contract, but we'll see. But anyway, so this race was a fantastic race, though. From start to finish, uh, I was very, very in- entertained uh, throughout the race, even though I was switching back between this and the Cricket World Cup. 
which, you know, by the way, what is up with that? We got, there were three events happening. You know, two of them. First of all, the British Grand Prix was in Great Britain. Uh, and it was in Silverstone. And then the Cricket World Cup was also in Great Britain. So if you were just a fan of sports in Great Britain, you were just having a really rough time of it, probably switching back and forth all day. Because uh, I know I was. And, uh, and and not to mention the Tour de France was on too. Mm-hmm. So you've got you, you've got so many things happening at the same time. Maybe uh, Cricket World Cup should have started a little bit later. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the race was so fantastic. Uh, the battles between Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc were incredible. These guys just were wheel to wheel almost every lap that they were on camera. It picked up where Austria left off. It was great. Uh, great battles for sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was entertained. Like I said, it was it was so much fun to watch. Uh, but then uh, later in the race, you know, again we saw we talked about the the safety car for Giovinazzi. But then later in the race. Uh, there was some contact between Sebastian Vettel and Max Verstappen. Verstappen got by Vettel on the hangar straight, and then Vettel just ran right into the back of him, uh, right going into the um, the chicanes there. Not really chicanes. I don't really know what those it, turns it, are yeah. called. But, you know, uh, so Vettel received a 10-second penalty and is recorded as 16th in the final results. Yeah, yeah, it was a bad incident there. I don't know what Vettel was doing falling right right behind Verstappen. I mean, just because he knew, he knew that Max was going to have to slow down a little sooner than normal because his entry line was lower into that corner. And his plows in the back of him. I'm glad he owned up to it. He came, came to Max there uh, once they got to, uh, you know, parked in, in, in the pit, pit lane there and, and uh, went over and shook hands. And Max later said that he kind of owned up to it. And, and then Vettel uh, admitted he, he screwed up on that one too. So that was, that was good to see. Uh, but kind of going back to the... Um, you know, Verstappen and Charles Leclerc, the Brooklyn's corners were just absolutely fantastic. You like, is is Max going to get him here? And uh, but Charles did a great job of of he he drove like a guy who had a couple years underneath his belt in good equipment, not just uh, ten races. Oh, absolutely. I was I was impressed with. I love, and I was talking to you about this before we started the show, and I want to make it a note now here because. Formula One, for some reason or another, I don't know what it's been, but it seems like the last couple of years, since about 2017, the racing has just been spectacular. I feel like there's so many memorable moments that are happening now, so many memorable instances, so much more wheel-to-wheel, side-by-side kind of racing, not just on the start, but then throughout the race, especially in the midfield from about fourth on back, sometimes on second on back. You know, and we saw that with Hamilton and Bottas battling in the beginning of the race. We saw it, we've seen that now with Verstappen and Leclerc, Verstappen and Vettel. You know, it seemed like everybody, I mean, Ricardo was making some really crazy moves back there with Hulkenberg. You know, and, and, and moving on here to our next point, that was double points for Renault. And they are now fifth, fifth in the Constructors' uh, Championship, 21 points behind McLaren. Which, again, 21 points behind McLaren, which is fourth the Constructors' Championship. I don't think I expected that preseason to see that at all I don't know how that happened where that's happened but good for McLaren Lando Norris has been having great great runs so has Carlos Sainz um but yeah no great racing so far in Formula One so far I feel like most of those races you know prior to like 2017 so like 2016 2015 especially 2014 were just complete snoozers snooze fests you know most of them were there were a few memorable ones here and there but for the most part I just can hardly remember a, a memorable Formula One race from there, but I feel like we've seen so many in just the past couple of years, thanks to whatever it is. I don't know, maybe if it's this wider chassis that they went to now. 
I don't really know what it is, but it, it's it's been it's been really really fun to watch, and we got a real great treat uh, on on Sunday with the, with the British Grand Prix. Definitely all the way, you know, you might have the first one, two, or three cars kind of separate themselves, but the battles from fourth through twelfth or thirteenth every week there are battles within that within those uh, standing or running order, and it's great to see. Um, and I agree with you. You know the the past few years. Yeah, you can say it's been a Mercedes kind of runaway with it, but you know the the cream's always going to rise to the top. Um, but the but the midfield battle is people tune in just to watch that, and, and just as much as they do to see okay, is who's going to win this race, um, and and how well Hamilton's going to do. So uh, yeah, what what we got on next there? Yeah, we were. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to the NASCAR Gander Gander Outdoors Truck Series. Buckle up in your truck two twenty five at Kentucky. Feels like this was forever ago, but it was actually just on Thursday of last week, so, uh, and this one was quite interesting, because to be honest with you, I tuned in for the, for the beginning of this race, and kind of was just like, eh, I don't care, it's Kentucky, it's trucks, eh, and then as I was going, and, and, you know, I was kind of paying half-hearted attention to this whole thing, and then as it kept going, I started to realize, oh my gosh, this could get crazy, and sure enough, it did, Tyler Ankrum leads the final one <laughs> one and a quarter laps over Brett Moffitt after Brett Moffitt runs out of fuel. Uh, coming to the white flag, uh, Tyler Ankrum, Ankrum has a 113-point lead now over 20th posi- position in the Truck Series points, which is Jennifer Jo Cobb. And he is championship eligible. Yeah, he yeah he's is eligible for the playoffs, eligible for the championship. Um, did not expect that going into the, the season either. Uh, especially from a guy who, what they say, he wasn't eligible for like the first three races of the season either. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, even more impressive for Ankrum on that part. Stuart Friesen and his racing team have their primary truck confiscated for a weird-looking firewall in the back end of the cabin. This was was an odd pre-race story that I was kind of confused on. I don't know, Josh. Do you have any more information on this? Uh, that's about it right now that I've seen. Um, you know. So what happened was, you know, they, they go through the inspection, and I guess NASCAR didn't like the way it looked, and said, "Hey, by the way, uh, we're taking your truck away," and they just leave it sitting out there. I loved it. Like even after the during the race, you could see the truck that was confiscated and had the black tarp on, uh, on the over the top of it, and just sitting there. Um, of course, they did allow uh, crew chiefs from other teams to go over there and take a look at it, um, and it, it just obviously something was was off, intentional or not, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely interesting there. And he had to start the back. I mean, he went out there and qualified. He had to make the race, um, which I'm sure wasn't a problem even in their backup truck. But he had to start the back. We had, he had to start the back, and he drives his way up to the top 20 rather rather quickly, top 10 a little later on, but goes on to finish second um, through some, you know, help of some other incidents and cautions. Definitely helped that out. But, hey. Good race for him and good rebound for a team that did not get Thursday going uh, off very well. Absolutely. Uh, now, there was another incident here in this race that was equally kind of bizarre. There was an incident in which Spencer Boyd and Natalie Decker were caught up in an accident that also involved Jordan Anderson. And uh, Boyd went head on into the wall and his truck was completely destroyed. The accident was was not a good one. Yeah, so what happened here was they're going down the straight. Um, Boyd makes a move on Natalie, and and she didn't. First off, we can we can harp on you know Natalie Decker's ability all she all, all we want. 
and, and what her commitment is. But she did nothing wrong in this incident. Boyd put the truck where it, where there wasn't a hole to, to be to be in, and, and if he had just stayed there, he would have probably had the preferred line going through into turn one and might have been able to get the position, but he moved up. That brings Natalie with her, and he just goes head on the wall. I have no think I've seen a truck crash that bad in a long time. Um, yeah, and, and then uh, they talk in the pits, and um, there's a video on, on, on Twitter that uh, caught like the last eight seconds of it. And uh, Natalie takes the hat off of Spencer Boyd, walks away, and kind of does a hat flip back. Um, you know, it totally, Natalie could have walked away from this. Like the like you know the victim that she was you know I think uh, Chicagoland she kind of had a good run and going and was was caught up in something that wasn't her own doing um, and then uh, here gets caught up in something that wasn't her own doing again she was having a couple good runs put together so she's frustrated but she didn't handle it the right way and now Spencer walks away like the victim of this Rob I, I, you're smirking over here what are you what are you thinking I mean I I don't know how often or if often at all I express my feelings towards Natalie Decker and and again you're right this wasn't an accident that was her fault but it just seemed kind of childish to me you know if you're gonna get mad at a guy for ruining your race I mean go up there and give him a good shove you know don't back down from something what's he gonna do exactly what is he gonna do he's not gonna do anything to like get back at you so you can really just vent your frustrations on this guy for as long as you want and he's not gonna really retaliate you know and i'm fine with that if you want to give him a shove if you want to come up to him and say hey bud i didn't appreciate that you ruined my race what the heck's going on you know that's all good and fine but what's up with the taking the hat stuff and i know that seems petty i know that seems odd it's kind of like you're you're singling someone out you're almost maybe being a little bit sexist over it i'm trying not to be that but i just feel like if anybody just takes someone's hat and throws it it just seems like it's a very childish yeah, maneuver it definitely seems like something that was meant to be at the karting track when you were 10 years old instead of uh, kentucky motor speedway and you know you're at least 16 years old in racing so yeah that was that was definitely interesting we didn't see that during the race i think i saw that the the next day mm-hmm. uh and yeah, that was all right that was a little crazy i i couldn't believe when i watched that video just like well here we had people probably going to be defending Natalie on Twitter, and now, yeah, yeah, crap. She turned her own tide on that one. Well, Natalie so. will always have people defending her. And don't get me wrong. I mean, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't have a problem necessarily with people defending her. But, you know, I just wish she would she would have chosen a different way to respond to that. And and I would say this to anybody. Not I'm not saying this just because yeah. it's Natalie. I'm saying this if anybody else did that, like if Kyle Busch did that, I'd be like, come on, now you really look like a crybaby, you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it, it doesn't really matter who's doing it. it. The point is it was done, and it's not exactly the best look that you can have. Yeah, that was, and I think right after that, you, and then you had the points leader in finger. Man, two bad races in a row for him when he sailed it down into turns three and four and couldn't make it stick. And he collected who was the leader going into turn three, Brandon Jones, who was in a pretty fast Kyle Busch Motorsports Toyota Tundra truck that race. What did you think about uh, Fingers move there? You know, I Brandon Jones was having such a good run. 
And I feel like someone like Brandon Jones needs a run that's good, needs some kind of confidence, because right now I really don't see how much longer he's going to be at Gibbs. He's not winning. He's not really doing much, you know, and for him to go out there and have a pretty decent run out there in a Kyle Busch car, Kyle Busch truck is, is real good, real good for him. But I just felt like Enfinger didn't need to do that. You know, I, I think, you know, there was time left in the race for the most part, and he didn't need to make a move like that. I wouldn't have made it. I think it was a bit too aggressive. But, you know, you could sit back here and be, you know, a Monday morning QB all you want. When you're in the moment and you're behind the wheel like that, and and this could go back, this could apply as well to to, to the Natalie Decker situation, I guess, too. When you're in the moment like that, you might not make the smartest decisions, and it takes, you know, experience to learn, you know, about how to handle a situation like this. And I think... And Finger really hurt himself by going that that aggressive. Yeah, and, and how many points has he lost the past two weeks with those bad finishes? I mean, he's in a he's in a tight points battle. He doesn't have a win right now. He only has four playoff points uh, to his name, and those come from four stage wins. And if he gets first place in the regular season standings, you know, there's there's 15 points, three playoff points. Um, they don't they don't come easy, but those are his. And if he doesn't get a victory before then, that that can help him move on to the next round uh, should that be an issue and so we speak about the playoffs before we wrap up the, the truck series discussion so the current drivers who are in are in finger moffitt friesen crafton hill Sauter, ankrum and chastain that's your that's your that's your that's your truck series lineup right now for the playoffs now we've got three races left a lot can happen um so but that leaves burton uh harrison burton ben rhodes todd gilliland and sheldon creed out and Sheldon Creed had a good looking truck there before. Rhodes had a good day going and then he had issues. Gilman ran out of fuel. Burton got a good finish uh, again. So he's, he's again, I think we said this last week that he's taking the criticism from from owner Kyle pretty well to heart. Uh, he stepped up his game. So, man, it's crazy lineup and a lot can change here. And just, just think the next one, next driver out on points is Matt Crafton. If like Harrison Burton wins. Matt Crafton is the guy who's outside looking in. Matt Crafton needs to repeat at Eldora. Like, he needs to. Yeah, he hasn't won since Eldora 2017. Yeah. He needs to come back and be and get a win at Eldora again. He's I mean, that. that's probably the best opportunity that he's going to have to, like, solidly protect himself in this championship. And because, you know, and, but it is crazy to see that, you know, the two KBM trucks are still, again, on the outside looking into the playoffs. I don't know what to do. I mean, I know we, we were giving Harrison Burton some real big creds. We've been giving Gilliland some creds when creds are due, but it's getting down to crunch time. These guys need to really, really work hard to get this get these themselves in the, in the playoffs. And this is really – this maybe isn't the best thing for Ross to happen either. With three races left, he's got a guy who's in the points ahead of him now. Um, who's not in the top eight, who has a win. Uh, but I think Ross might be the best guy out between him and Aker. He might pass him in the in the points for the next few races. But you have Pocono, Eldora, and Michigan. Uh, those are your three remaining truck regular season races. And you have three guys in the top, in, in that in that list who have not won, that being Grant Anfinger, Stuart Friesen, still working for, looking for his first career win in Matt Crafter. So it should be very interesting and uh Moving on to our free feature paint scheme of the week, we got the 2012 Indi- uh, IZOD IndyCar Series. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened that year? Yeah, the 2012 IZOD IndyCar Series was a, was a pretty fun year for me. I remember it very fondly, and I know it's crazy to say that. You know, it's kind of nostalgic for me now. 
But uh, it was a big year for the IZOD IndyCar Series. It was uh, the first year of the DW12 or IR12 uh, chassis, the brand new chassis that uh, IndyCar uh, created. I remember, you know what's really funny too, is I actually just looked back on my Facebook memories and uh, a couple of days ago, I believe it was, where I was mentioning how much I, I guess I wanted the Lola chassis to be selected out of that, you know, because they had a whole ton of chassis in 2011, uh, you know, that they were going to pick, or 2010, I think it was, that they were going to pick to be the new car for the future in 2012, and I really wanted the Lola, I think, and then there, that was the first time we'd saw, seen the Delta Wing, um, the Swift chassis made a one, uh, I think there was one called literally the Bat, um, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of guys, and then, then there was also Delara and Delara ended up being selected as that uh, as the manufacturer, but it was great because we saw new V6 engines, twin turbos, uh, 2.2 liter v, uh, V6 twin turbo engines, um, and they were uh, powered by Chevrolet, Lotus, and Honda. Um, the DW12 was in fact named uh, after the late Dan Weldon, who died as a result of his injuries in the 2011 season finale race at Las Vegas. I am wearing the Dan Weldon t-shirt. You cannot see it right now, but I am. Uh, this was completely unintentional for me. I did not intend on this, but I will always show people that I love Dan Weldon. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, yeah, so so in 2012, you know, it, the, the season ended on, on a crazy note. Uh, will Power had the championship going into the final race, and then while racing with Ryan Hunter Ray, his the guy who was, you know, he was racing in the championship too, he crashed. And Ryan Hunter Ray ended up, all he had to do was basically finish what I think up, 14th or better or something uh, in order to win that race um, and it was it was just a, a pretty amazing uh, season uh, Ryan Hunter Ray would go on to win five races uh, that season he went on a tear, tear throughout the summer months I remember when I remember that uh, Will Power ended up winning three races but he finished uh, second for the third straight year in the point standing so Josh let me ask you what is your featured paint scheme for the 2012 IZOD IndyCar series Ryan Briscoe's number two PPG automotive finishes Chevrolet. That was mine. Uh, the PPG cars always just look good to me. Uh, it's tough to make a bad PPG looking car. Um, yeah, it was. You, know, you can argue which one was the base. I would argue white's the base, but then it had a black secondary base, and it was uh, accented by the blue, and it just looked really nice. Um, it was Briscoe had previously won this run the six for a few years and. They'd change the number to two, which I just thought looked better going with the whole uh, Indy or uh, Team Penske IndyCar lineup. Um, and that year, uh, he ran it three races at Iowa, Mid Ohio, and the Baltimore Street Circuit. Um, qualifying, or yeah, qualifying fifth, fifth, and eleventh, and finishing eighteenth, seventh, and just coming up shy at Baltimore in second. Um, and I always always appreciate the uniformity of of the. Uh, Team Penske looking paint schemes. That's one that just stands out to me. You know, when I look at when I scrolling through pictures, trying to choose one and jogging my memory just a tad bit. There's a few other ones that came a close second, um, but this one, uh, this is one I rolled with, and I and I like it. I like it a lot, and kind of miss Ryan Briscoe in the IndyCar series as well. Rob, I did not look at what you put down. So, what do you have for us today? All right, so I I like that paint scheme too, but I have uh, one that features some fun facts and. Uh, some interesting stories and tales because um, I was uh, I was there when I kind of saw everything unfold. So, but I originally wanted to pick Rubens Barrichello's car because when Rubens Barrichello came to IndyCar, it was a huge deal. 
Um, it made me excited. I mean, I was ultra, ultra excited the whole time. But uh, anyway, but I decided against that because I wanted to tell some stories here real quick while I had the chance. So what I've actually chosen is uh, Jean Alessi's number 64 Lotus entered by Fanforce United in the 2012 Indianapolis 500. And there's a couple of interesting points about this. Now, first of all, this Lotus entry car quite literally looked like, you know, a Lotus car of old. It was very John Player special-esque, you know, something similar to what the late Ayrton Senna used to drive in Formula 1 in, I believe, the 1980s, early 1980s. Um, and, uh, you know, it had it had vibes of, of that. Uh, but um, if you recall the Lotus debacle of the 2012 IndyCar series... It was a, si- a situation in which Lotus was grossly unprepared. The, the engines were grossly underpowered. Uh, and most of the teams that had Lotus contracts ended up being able to get out of them due to poor performance, due to not making, you know, the lawyers had to find loopholes in order to get out of the contracts so that they could get with a Chevy or Honda engine. You know, I think uh, Dryan Reinbold and Dragon Racing, you know, guys like that, those were, those were guys that were stuck with the Lotus engine and I think both of them ended up getting Chevrolet engines uh, by Indianapolis so that they could be competitive. But there were two Lotus engines that were forced to start the Indianapolis 500. The, obviously, Jean Alessi's car, but also um, the HVM racing car of Simona de Silvestro was unable. They were unable to secure another uh, engine manufacturer, uh, but also because I think uh, HVM and Simona had prior ties to Lotus anyway, um, based on the looks of the car. Um, so it looked like it was, you know, they were kind of in it for the long haul, just struggling, but it was a poor season for Simona, uh, and, and a lot of people feel bad for, um, for that season, but, uh, Fanforce United was Tice Carlson, if you recall Tice Carlson, the reason why I like tar- talking about Tice Carlson is because not only did, again, uh, he graduated from North Central High School with my uncle, fun facts, um, but he was also raced in, uh, sprint cars, midgets, and in the IRL, uh, from 96 to about 2001, um, uh, that was when Tice Carlson ran. He attempted a couple of Indy Lights races in about 2006-ish, but ended up just retiring, and he's now a real estate agent um, in the Carmel area of Indianapolis. Uh, and so, But he d- did run, and he's now actually the... the uh, Tice Carlson is now the driver racing expert for uh, Wish TV Channel 8 here in Indianapolis as well. So... But to, to talk about this more, uh, Jean Alessi uh, made his final competitive start in motorsports as, as the 33rd starter to the Indianapolis 500. And this was the one of the few years where there were only 33 entries that showed up. So by default, Di Silvestro and Alessi made the race despite the fact that they would be have been bumped easily. I mean, they were at least 10 miles off the pace, 10 miles an hour off the pace, if not 15 or 20, I think. Um... And, uh, and, but, so, he, he started the race in, in 33rd, uh, and, but the cars hit both him and, uh, Simone Di Silvestro were flagged about a quarter of distance into the race, um, less than a quarter distance, actually, uh, due to failure to make, meet minimum speed, um, and Alessi was originally credited as the 32nd finishing car after retiring after Simone Di Silvestro, however, because he su- retired after Simone Di Silvestro. He was penalized by IndyCar for ignoring the black flag. He did not come in to park his car or to serve the penalty in enough time, so they moved him back to the 33rd position. Now, uh, that was, again, Jean Alessi's final career 
uh, competitive motorsports start, despite saying, and this was fun, he said, I remember on his Facebook page, he said, quote, I'll be back to Indianapolis. He had intended to return to Indianapolis in 2013, but uh, ended up retiring entirely later that summer. Um, Tice Carlson ended up selling this car to Buddy Lazier, who ran it in the Indianapolis 500 from 2013 to 2017, but DNQ'd in 2015. Um, and after Buddy's crash at the 2017 Indianapolis 500, I believe the car has been retired. I don't know what has happened to the car. It could be scrap metal right now. It could be extra parts. I don't know. But I do know that the car is no longer in service. So that is the paint scheme. The paint scheme was, again, you know, a very good, beautiful, lotus-looking car with the black the black and gold uh, stripes and things like that. But uh, it has a very interesting history, this car. Lotus always has good-looking cars, always. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, you know, this, this was a situation where I wanted to talk about this car because uh, not a lot of people get to know about it. Not a lot of people know whatever happened to that car. And I had a wonderful opportunities to talk to Buddy and uh, talk to Tice as well. I got to talk to Tice Carlson during that weekend. And I remember him... He was just so excited to be fielding a car in the Indy 500. He knew he was going to finish last. I mean, he knew that Lotus engine was garbage. He knew it wasn't going to have a chance, but he was just excited to be able to field a car in Indianapolis. He tried to field another car with Stefan Wilson in about 2015, um, but uh, you know, uh, but sponsorship fell through for both of them, and funding fell through. But uh, Tice did run an Indy Lights team with Scott Anderson for a couple of years, Fan Force United still, uh, until he ended up uh, shattering the team. Uh, around, uh, let's say, 2014, 2015, I think, I want to say. Um, so that's that's my story on uh, the featured paint scheme of the week. Um, I think it's now time for us to move on to talk about the uh, second NASCAR race of the weekend. On Friday, we saw the NASCAR Xfinity Series ALSCO 300. Christopher Bell dominates the early stages of the race, but Cole Cluster... Cole Custer? Cluster? What am I talking about? <laughs> Cole Custer flopped into victory lane after leading 87 of the last 100 laps. I mean, Custer just... Ran away from that. Flopped into victory lane is quite the pun, though. It, it, uh, you didn't see the uh, victory lane celebration. Poor guy. <laughs> you, you, you wonder, like, what is it, when is the guy going to misstep off that, that car falling backwards? And, well, he did. Kind of fell into some cam, camera guys and uh, uh, other probably Xfinity and, and NASCAR people around there. Burst the cans of beers together and drank them, <laughs> which I think this is a unique way to celebrate. You know, hey, you're old enough, let him do what he wants, I guess. And he does that, and he pushes back off and just kind of falls on his butt. Uh, so, yeah, he, sorry, flopped. Missed a pun there, man. It's all right. I mean, I, I saw flopped, and, and, and I was thinking, I was like, man, he really did kind of flop in the victory lane, and then he brought it up. And so, yeah, that was Custer's fifth win of the season. He was able to stay in front of Christopher Bell on the— Outlap of his final pit stop, and then he was just gone from that point on. You know, the Christopher Bell and Cole Custer show, it's, that's the Xfinity series from, from now on, really. Uh, really but let's it is. credit how well these guys are running, you know, in, 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 in oh, absolutely. What the, how the teams are giving them, particularly how much better Custer is running himself compared to uh, his teammate, uh, uh, Chase Briscoe. Briscoe. Chase Briscoe, thank you. I had Ryan on my mind there. Chase Briscoe in the 98 car, new team this year, new full-time team this year. They ran some races last year. And then as how well Bell is running better than Jones, and, well, it kind of depends on who's in, who's behind the wheel of the 18 car, I guess. How, you know, if he's outperforming the 18 car or not. But, uh, yeah, still, it was an entertaining race, I think, uh, again. Um, you know, for all three races, you had the traction compound, the PJ1, 
kind of in the second and third grooves, not on the bottom side in, in, in the turns. And I think that helped the racing. Um, I like to call it fixing a design flaw myself, but um, it made the racing a little more interesting. And, you know, speaking of the PJ1, it kind of caught Austin Sindrick off guard a little bit, and he spun in stage uh, stage two, but he rebounded to finish 14th uh, after backing the car into the wall. Gives a credit to that team and also the uh, the, the composite bodies of the Xfinity yeah. Series and, and how just the integrity is very tough to compromise when you wreck one of those cars and... Um, of course, he, you know, it's Team Penske, great, great organization, and has some great people around them. That, you know, they, they can have got engineers working out these these problems. So, for him, uh, looking like it was going to be a good day for him. And, you know, this time last year, we were, we were saying, what he needs to settle down. He needs to quit making these aggressive moves. Now, that move might have been a little aggressive, but he saw an opportunity, but he, ha- he hasn't been making those same mistakes that he may- was making last year. Uh, um, and uh, Brandon Jones, you know, we talked a little bit about him. Um, had an engine go while leading, and he had a car that probably competed with Bell and, and Custer there. You know, one of the days that he was, he, he will wish he he had back. Um, only five cars were on the lead lap at the end of that race. Um, kind of, I, I don't mind seeing that, but I feel like this is not a. Not what we wanted to see at Kentucky, particularly when we had so good of racing, but that long green flag around at the end just killed what we had going there in the first two stages. What do you think, Rob? Well, I thought, uh, yeah, I mean, the first two stages were really good, and then once Custer and Bell just kind of pulled away from the field there in the last stage, it was it was really kind of just a snooze fest after that point. It was standard Kentucky, you know, and, and that's that's the problem. I mean, I didn't really have high expectations for this weekend when it came to racing. You know, I thought last last week, you know, racing was good. The week before that, the racing was pretty good, you know. And, um, you know, I, I didn't really have high expectations for this one, uh, especially not for the Xfinity race. Uh, I really didn't have high expectations. But the first two stages were really good. And to see Brandon Jones running out there, uh, leading some laps, getting some more experience, I mean, that's good, especially considering how he had but it's just it's hard to watch him have so much bad luck too Mm -hmm. um it's really difficult to watch him have all that bad luck you know leading the race and the truck series get wrecked leading the race xfinity series blow an engine i mean come on i mean that's got to be the i mean that's got to be the toughest situation to be in if you're brandon jones because not only you're trying to outperform your teammates especially in colt christopher bell who's constantly outperforming him almost every week and then whoever's in the 18 is outperforming him at some in some respect you know he's really got to get more top fives more more uh top threes really in order to be seen as a real threat to some of these races and seen as a real threat to you know stay with joe gibbs and it doesn't bode well to now he's 12th in the xfinity mm-hmm. series points um ryan seek passed him ryan seek had a great race i mean uh, i think we talked about it last week and maybe the week before you know that how the, the the gains that Ryan Seacrest Racing has made and got a ninth place finish. Um, don't know if it makes up for the run that they had at Daytona, but uh, you know, or the run that they should have had at Daytona. But you know, that was I, I don't know. I don't. I, I I hate. I think Brandon Jones got the got the talent, but it's the stars aren't aligning. You know, he he can't turn a a fifteenth place day into a tenth place day. Um, and then when you have a good run like he had at Chicagoland in the truck series, and then when he was having it here at Kentucky um, this weekend, he 
twice in the NBA Xfinity Series. You just can't capitalize on it. So it's a shame to see that. And kind of the final note here, Junior Motorsport got all four of their teams in there. It's kind of like uh, Bell, Custer are on their own level. Then you got Reddick. And then you got the four JRM cars, and, and maybe everyone else can be kind of thrown in that spot too, but JRM's capitalizing the best. But Michael Annette, um, fifth straight top six finish at a mile-and-a-half track. The improvement that that guy has made is is outstanding. Um, and I don't know if he's going to be a threat to go all the way to Homestead, but we'll see how the rest of the season, or the rest of the regular season plays out. And, and of course, you know, we thought, that uh, all guy would be kind of a shoe in for Homestead last year, so you never know what can happen. Well, you know, I think consistency is a real big key to winning NASCAR championships. You know, I think, and, and really championships in general. You know, NASCAR has kind of kicked out that idea that consistency is necessary, but I think we've seen even with the playoff system that consistency is still rewarded, yes. especially with with stages. You know, stage points, playoff points, things like that. You know, all that kind of stuff. That kind of consistency is rewarded, and for Michael Annette to be out there, I mean, he was one of the only cars in the lead lap, you know, so even towards the end of that race, so it was, it's real nice to see, and I think, you know, for him to be that consistent th- at this point in the series, in the, in the, in, in the season is so important, because he's going to be able to carry a lot of that momentum, I'm sure, into the playoffs, and if he can keep performing this way, it's going to help him really well, and I wouldn't count him out right now as a possible threat to at least get him the final four to Homestead. I don't know, you know, maybe he'll make, you know, I don't know if he'll win the championship, but I wouldn't inherently count him out for the final four because if he keeps having a run like this, that's how you get into that final four. That's how you get into the next round of the of, of the playoffs. You keep finishing fifth, fourth, sixth, you know, things like that. You don't have to win races. You just have to finish well enough, get the stage points to, to you know, prepare propel yourself forward and, and, and really just keep running that well. You know, he can run third, fourth, fifth, or the rest of the season on out and probably still have a really good shot at uh, at winning at winning that championship. And and this is the time of the season where you definitely want to turn it up, um, get, get get going in the right direction, and you got to wonder, has Bell and, and uh, Reddick in particular with a couple not-so-great races here recently, and, and Custer, have they peaked early? I, my answer to that is probably no. I think these teams are, are are good enough to go all the way, and the drivers are good enough to go all the way. But this is the time where if you want to start picking it up and stepping up your game and, and putting together those solid top three, four, five place finishes, now's the time of the season to do it. Ju- July is a great time to uh, turn it up. So, yeah. What do you got for uh, next for us there, Rob? Yeah, up next we're going to talk about the Formula E New York E Prix weekend, rounds 12 and 13 of the Formula E season. Uh, this was the championship and penultimate rounds of the new of the Formula E season, the 2018 to 2019 season. Uh, race one was complete madness from first on back, second on back, I should say. Sebastian Buemi uh, wins an easy race. I mean, he was out for almost pretty much oh, the whole entire race, led almost every lap, I believe. Uh, but there was complete chaos behind him. Guys were beaten and banging and bump hit putting the chrome horn on guys i mean it was crazy to watch there john eric verne the points leader going into the race crashed early with teammate andre lutterer uh had to come in uh very early in the race and replace his entire front nose i was surprised he didn't have any kind of suspension damage because i saw that hit i mean he it looked like he hit pretty hard 
uh, and I thought for sure that some of that, uh, the front wheel guards probably ha could have damaged some of the suspension on the car, but surprisingly, no, he was fine, he drove all the way back up it, through the field to, to uh, get into the points, he, he ended up getting it a tenth, he was still the points leader by relatively a wide margin at this time, and uh, ended up, however, crashing again with Lauderer, um, with a few laps left in the race, just a couple of laps, I believe it was, if it wasn't the second to last lap, I believe it had to have been the last lap, um, but like I said, he was still the points leader after the race, Wemmy did close the gap by a little bit, but Jeff still had about a 20 or 30 point lead over Wemmy, um, so, but he couldn't afford a similar race in race two, he had to score maximum points, or he had to score some kind of points, or he had to make sure that Wemmy didn't win the race, um, and so race two was relatively quieter, actually, um, you know, there wasn't a, as a lot of beating and banging, a lot of chrome horns, I mean, you still saw it, but not nearly as much as in race one, Robin Fryens made a cracker of a move, and I say cracker of a move, because goodness gracious, there's no other way to say it, um, he makes a dive bomb pass into him, into, I believe, turn one, uh, on Alexander Sims, and that ended up being the pass that won Fryens the race, and I believe this was one of his first career wins in uh, Formula E. I don't know if he's won another race in Formula E. I didn't check that, but, you know, it was a big win for, for Robin Freins. Uh, Jean-Eric Verne rode around in around 10th, 11th, you know, around, around in, in, in the points, uh, and ended up finishing 7th and claiming the championship with ease. Jean-Eric Verne becomes not only the first repeat champion in Formula E, but also the first back-to-back -back champion. And so, as we finish talking about Formula E there, and I, we, we're about to shift into upshift and downshift. I want to kind of pose a question first to Josh and ask, and, and also to some of our fans. You know, you're always free to tweet us, tweet at the show at uh, R-P-E-E-T-E-R-S-3-3 and at R-O-L-L-E-R underscore zero one. You're always free to tweet at us with your questions and uh, come to us because we, well, we always have, you know, we can always, we like having fans, we like bouncing off questions. So my question to Je to, to to Josh here is going to be, is Jean-Eric Verne overrated or underrated, and should he have had another shot in Formula 1? And the reason why I ask this is because, you know, we've seen the the prowess that Jeff has shown in Formula E, and, and even his Formula 1 st stats are not all that bad comparatively. Um, you know, he did drive for Toro Rosso, and, and it begs the question, you know, did Red Bull make the right choice bringing up, you know, Ricardo instead of him? You know, and I think, you know, it, it paid off because Ricardo ended up winning a lot of races for them. But do you think that Jeff could have maybe won the same races? And maybe if someone else is willing to give him a shot, should Jean-Eric Verne take another Formula One call? You know, it's it, it's questions like that. So I guess I'll ask Josh, you know, do you think Jean-Eric Verne, first of all, is overrated or underrated? Mm. I don't know. That's kind of tough. I, I think it's tough to compare the disciplines. There's different strategies and drivers and mentality and, and, and drivability that you, to drive a Formula 1 car versus a Formula E car. Um, I, I, I would be... I think your next question is, does he deserve another shot at Formula 1? And I would say, yeah, give him another shot. Give him a test. Uh, we talked about you know uh, Haas earlier. I think that's a team that might be looking at you know this guy who, who's done really well in Formula E. I think he might be underrated right now so uh, yeah give him another shot see what he's you know he's got five years of this underneath his belt five five more years of races and and driving you know similar style cars not necessarily drivable cars but you know yeah give him their shot they might be a little bit underrated um 
Could we see him in Formula One car next year? I wouldn't be surprised. I think. I mean, I think Jeff is is pretty committed to Formula E at this point. So it might be kind of silly to even ask about another shot in Formula One. But it is. But it is a good point. You know, this is somebody who I feel like there was a lot of controversy over his F1 exit. There were a lot of fans that I don't think were very happy with the decision Red Bull made to bring up, you know, Signs and Kvyat instead of sticking with sticking sticking with Jev again. You know, I think a lot of people felt like, you know, and, and it is interesting because, you know, you see what Toro Rosso does, you know, they used to be kind of like a revolving door for drivers and now they just keep bringing on Kvyat back. But Kvyat has not I don't think he's performed as well as Jeff did in 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 a similar to same car. So it kind of begs the question, you know, if if Toro Rosso ever wanted to give Jeff a call again, would he even take the call? You know, would he take the call? You know, he's got success in Formula E right now. He's having great success. He's winning championships. He's winning races. Does he want to go back to maybe finishing like 8th or ninth in Formula 1? And maybe what people forget, you know, his average start improved each year but also his finishes in this final season were better than they were the first two mm-hmm. you know a whole pos- two positions better which is you know, I think it's a rather good game for midfield and and for a guy who, who was already finishing like closer to 15th and then was now finishing in the 12th range each race so or, or not on average not each race but on average so yeah give him another shot I think he deserves one um and, and like you said yeah the exit was I paid off what the what Red Bull decided on and of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, um, and we you you already used the term Monday morning quarterback the whole thing all, all day long, and you don't know how 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 Jev takes that opportunity and does he race differently driving a Red Bull car? You know how does his driving style change? You know with this opportunity, so yeah, it's tough. Um, and like you said, he he's doing very well. I think he's one of the he isn't. I don't guess he is one of the faces of Formula E, so they would hate to lose him. So, but. What, 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 where does he want to go? Where's his big desire at? That's the question we don't know. Our answer, we don't know. Yeah, I mean, and you can ask that because, you know, some people always like to ask, like, oh, you know, Haas should go go grab Rossi. Well, Rossi's already said, screw Formula One, you know. I, I, he used to want it real bad, and now he's suddenly realized, oh, hey, IndyCar is more fun. I have more fun here in IndyCar than I would ever have in Formula 1. And I think Jeff might even be in the same boat where he's like, I'm having more fun here in Formula E. I'm winning races. I'm winning championships. I'm contending, you know, racing and race out. It's kind of like, I know it's a hypothetical question that it's probably not going to happen, but it is an interesting topic to to talk about because Jean-Eric Verne, you know, comparatively speaking, you know, you kind of want to peg him. Has he improved as a driver since, you know, 2015? Or has he been in a situation where, you know, he's just really hit his stride and really been in rhythm in the Formula E car? Does it just suit his driving talents, driving abilities? Because when you're lifting and coasting and all the energy conservation that goes in to really racing Formula E and winning Formula E, it's a tough thing. You know, Felix Rosenquist has talked about it many times coming from IndyCar from Formula E is is difficult because you know you're so or it's almost easier I think because you're so used to that you know that 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 energy save that that they they do in Formula E and when you come over to IndyCar you know you're full throttle flat out the whole time and maybe you're conserving fuel here and there but you're not having to lift and coast down the straightaways in order to you know keep energy regen going things like that so I don't know it's just an interesting point to talk. And it, do you did you want to add anything on that before we yeah. move on to our another our next uh, topic? Yeah, just one last thing. You know, you said it. Winning. 
I think if you were to ask many drivers, retired, what do you miss racing? I think they'd say I miss winning instead of I miss racing. And he's winning right now, like you said, and he's won a number of races over the past three seasons. So, um, yeah, that, that's just my, my last point there. So why don't you guide us into uh, our upshift-downshift segment? Yeah, that's a good place to, to lean into our upshift and downshift talking about a, a hypothetical question. So to, to go over the rules again, uh, upshift downshift is is a pretty pretty simple game that we play. Uh, we pros a question we or a statement, and uh, if you upshift, then you agree with that statement or question. Or if you downshift, you disagree with that statement or question. So I'm going to start with the first one here. The 2016 was the first year of the playoffs for the NASCAR Gander Outdoor Truck Series with Ross Chastain's redeclaration for truck points and winning, and then Tyler Ankrum's win at Kentucky. Do you upshift for the 2019 NASCAR Gander Outdoor Truck Series playoff race as the wildest one yet? Josh, do you upshift or downshift? If you downshift, I'm going to be mad. It's upshift, man. It's upshift. It's crazy. Um, I mean, you have two guys right now outside the top eight who have won. You have three races left. And if you have, like we mentioned earlier, you have three of those guys win. One of those guys is not in it. That is crazy. This is awesome. Um, I mean, I... I don't think we would have been in this point, uh, you know, knowing that Kyle Busch had to run five races um, in the first, you know, 16 races of the year, and because you can't run, well, 15 races of the year, because you can't run the, the final race of the regular season either. So, you know, there's like five wins right there that you could probably chalk up to Kyle. And so everyone else is like, okay, everyone, the, right, the other races are ours. Yes, it's the wildest one. Yes, yeah, it's awesome. I love it. And the stories have come along with it. It's great. I, I liked it too. I think I'm an upshift because. I mean, I think having only eight spots available as opposed to, say, in the Cup Series where you have 16, it really, when you have multiple winners like we're seeing now, you know, previously in the Truck Series, I think we only saw, like, you know, three, maybe four tops guys actually win a race that were eligible for the playoffs, you know, and usually they would all win the same races, so it was repeat winners and stuff like that. Now seeing a bunch of different winners like this, seeing people, you know, come come up from this, it really is really interesting because you've got Matt Crafton being, you know, on the bubble. You've got two Kyle Busch cars that are on the outside looking in. You know, that's a huge deal. And you've even got guys that haven't won a race that are still trying to win a race, trying to make sure that those other guys don't win a race so that they can stay in in. in, in uh, championship conversation, you know, it's it's crazy, and I like it, I like it, I was a little bit concerned when they said, alright, we're only going to have eight guys get, get in here, you know what, eight guys is fine, especially for the truck series, you know, this, this provides more drama, more action, I think, um, in the overall championship, and it kind of adds and pushes for that more consistency that we need to see that fans like to see about in when it comes to winning championships so that's why I'm going to upshift on that uh, and move into our second question of the day um, moving uh, overseas to Europe I guess FII president Jean Tot proposed the idea to bring back refueling to Formula One races as a way to improve the sport do you upshift or downshift the idea of bringing back refueling to Formula One races this is an easy upshift, and again, if you say downshift, I'm going to be mad, man. Um, yeah, it's easy upshift. It's strategy play. Um, you know, I, I've kind of said, you know, between our conversations, and I might have tweeted about it in the past, I think Formula One, um, you need two pit stops for tires. The tires last too long. I know the races uh, are, aren't are always the longest um, time-wise, but they're long in laps, and tires can wear out quicker, if you ask me. Um, 
and refueling just adds that extra thing that what can go wrong with with the pit stop when 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 they come into box okay you can have the you know right now basically it's a tire didn't get brought out in time or a gun jams up or a jack fails right that's it refueling you can have that not you know the nozzle and the connector just not go in and uh, or not release the fuel that changes up the running order drastically and that can lead to guys getting points who maybe wouldn't have or, or were looking for points or guys who were needing points and has something go wrong and they don't get points it's awesome i need it upshift 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 i'm gonna go ahead and, and i know it's easy to upshift on this one and i do upshift i do honestly upshift but i understand that they took away the fuel refueling for safety and i understand that but at the same time i'm so tired of seeing one stop two stop races I mean, we need to have minimum three or four stop races at this point in order to really get an idea of how good, you know, a team can be strategy-wise in order to really see how well the driver can be saving fuel, preserving tires, things like that. You know, or maybe even, you know, have a situation where a team's like, all right, well, we're just going to fuel you on this next stop, so we need you to save the tires. You know, we need you to, we're going to make it on, say, like, you know, we're going to make it on two stops for tires, but we're probably going to have to make it on four for fuel or something like that. You know, we're going to have to take two of those pit stops to refuel the car, two of those to refu- to put new tires on, something like that. Add a, change up some kind of strategy like that. I think it would be really, really great. I think it's a, a something that Formula One needs to look into. I understand why they would be hesitant to do it, why some people would be hesitant to do, do it again. But, you know... It's the the action, the undercuts, you know, strategy. Strategy is part of what makes Formula One fun to watch, especially when the racing isn't great. You know, when there's cars not close together, when there's cars not able to pass one another, it's really all about the strategy. Like, who's got the better strategy? Who's got the better ability to conserve their stuff, to save their tires, to save their fuel? That's what we, I want to watch. And I think adding refueling will just make strategy even better in Formula One. So that's why I'm going to upshift. Um... And another one, sticking with Formula 1, as we continue on to our upshift and downshift, our third question of the day. After two years of negotiations, excuse me, after two years of negotiations, Silverstone and the FIA came to an agreement to keep the British Grand Prix on the Formula 1 schedule through 2024 at Silverstone. Do you upshift or downshift on this agreement? Josh. Uh, It's simple. Uh, Upshift. Upshift. Look at the racing that we had on Sunday. Um, again, you know, you had some great battles. Um, just like with any other F- F1 race, you know, you're going to have the top one or two, maybe three guys separate themselves from the crowd, but you have a great mid- uh, midfield battle, and and you have a... This Silverstone has some great opportunities for drivers to make mistakes, drivers to make passes, um, and plus, you know, every team... Um, or at least nine of the teams they have headquarters there in 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 Britain. So if you don't have the British Grand Prix, where else are you gonna uh, Silverstone? Where else are you gonna put it? Um, it you know Donington doesn't have the stands and the and I I don't know if it's up to uh you know top standards, but this is great. It's great to see. I love it. Um, and it's and it is biasly what my favorite F one track of all time so yeah i'm glad to see it up shifted up yeah and i'm i'm i kind of echo your feelings here but you know i'm i what i wasn't i'm glad the british grand prix is staying on a permanent circuit 
I wouldn't have minded if, you know, they shifted it to Brands Hatch or Donington or something like that. That wouldn't have really bothered me all that much. I'm just glad it's not, you know, some kind of street race through London, you know. Let let Formula E have that, you know, because that's, that's what Formula E can do. Formula can, E can bring a crowd like that uh, to, to a street event and, and have a street event like that be kind of quick up and down. Um, whereas I think if you had a Formula One event through the streets of Britain, I think it would be a lot harder to build it and tear it down. Um, and I, I don't know how well attended it would be, how interesting it would be. I think a lot of people would just be very salty about it, very, very upset about it. So I think it's, it's for the best that this, this ends up happening. And that's why I'm going to upshift on it anyway. Um, fourth question of the day is going to be both Formula E champion, both the Formula E championship race and the NTT IndyCar Series race at Toronto, both scheduled for 3:30 start times. Do you upshift or downshift the circumstance of start times? First and foremost, I'm going to downshift because this is crazy <laughs> to me. I hate it. I hate when we do this. I hate when we do this when we have two competing races again. And I get that Formula E and IndyCar are two completely separate markets. You know, most people, unless you're like me and Josh who loved, loved to watch motorsports, will watch any kind of motorsport that's on TV, you know, you think, oh, okay, well, you'll, you'll, most people who hate Formula E will probably watch IndyCar race. Most people who are kind of like, eh, on IndyCar will probably watch Formula E race because it's a championship race. I think it was silly to even have this race start this late to begin with. I think, why are we starting races at 3.30 when we can start them at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock? Two, three o'clock. No, not three o'clock. One o'clock or, or or noon. You know, something like that. Especially since both races are on the East Coast, Eastern Time Zone. Anyway, I don't know. I'm I'm downshifting because I'm tired of seeing that. I already had to channel flip a lot this weekend, and I didn't like doing that. I already had to use both my TVs a lot, which meant that I didn't get to really focus in on all the action that was happening on whatever I was watching. You know, it's it's. I know that there's not going to be a way to correlate these two because IndyCar is not going to change its start time for Formula E and Formula E is not going to change its start time for IndyCar and FS1 isn't going to change its start time for NBC and NBC is not going to change its start time for FS1. I get it. But I just think it, it overall for a, from a fan standpoint, it sucked. And I, that's why I downshift. So I don't know. What do you think, Josh? Well, I'm downshifting too. Um, you know, um I, my original plan was to kind of channel flip a little bit, and then I found myself firmly planted on the IndyCar race. Um, and so I look back, I'm like, I was disappointed in myself, but, you know, I was like, dang, this, this just stunk. You know, you could have had... To me, I thought it would have been really nice to see a, a, a high noon race for um, for the Formula E in, in the New York uh, Manhattan backdrop myself. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I just, I, I just don't get it. Uh, it's kind of like what... This is completely different, but this is what I thought of. It's kind of like what uh, Formula One did this year with NASCAR. You know, they, they're racing the United States Grand Prix when uh, NASCAR is at Texas Motor Speedway in November. I thought, why? This is—it's not fair to the fans. Um, and I, you know, like you said, I think you're more likely to have IndyCar and NASCAR cooperate, um, particularly now that you have one that you know that the network is the same, the same provider. Um, but man, it just, it just, it's just unfair to the fans, it's unfair to the two, I think there's more motorsports fans out there who would watch the race than, than maybe we think, uh, or both races, if they were, if they were on, on separate times, so, yeah, just downshift, it's just, it's just bad to me, and, and 3.30 is just a terrible start time for a race in any sporting event on the East Coast, so, just note that. Yeah, the Formula E race started at 4 o'clock on 
Big Fox on Saturday, the race one, and then 3.30 on FS1 on Sunday. And I felt like the 4 o'clock start time for the Formula E race on Saturday was better, but mainly because there wasn't anything happening. You know, I mean, most most things were done by 4 o'clock, and the NASCAR race didn't even start until 7.30, so you had plenty of time, just no conflict. So it was just, I don't know. Um, I don't know. We could debate on that I, if all we want, but I think we should just move on. And like I said, if you always, if you guys want to be a part of the show, you're welcome to tweet questions at us uh, anytime you want. So the final uh, upshift, downshift question of the day is going to be, Paul Menard addressed the media this week about his future with the Wood Brothers. No doubt when you look at the Xfinity series, there are four drivers in the pipeline like Cold Cust- Cole Custer, Chase Briscoe, and more notably Team Penske driver Austin Sindrick. Should Menard be worried, or does this team, or does the team simply need to, like Menard said, perform better? Do you upshift or downshift that Menard needs to be worried? You know, he's got the big, big sponsor behind him, right? He's got Menards backing him. That's about the only saving grace to him right now. Uh, you know, keeping his position. However, I would be a little worried. Um, I just think this the way you know, look at like, his age and look at look at Austin Cindric his age, and obviously Cole Custer, I don't know he leaves the Stuart Haas camp and an affiliated team, but yeah, I'm, I'm upshifting, I, I would be a little worried if, um, if I'm, if I'm Paul, um, and yeah, my performance can change and fix a lot of things, as we know, that's kind of the cure-all, winning cures all, it doesn't matter what sport you're talking about, um, but, it, as well, as I'll mention later, um, he had a good week, he went out there and, and had a good performance, um, just, yeah, I, I would be worried. It's something I've been thinking about for a while. Um, is, is, is Austin Cindric bound for the 21? So, um, I'm up shifting. You know, and this is going to be pretty interesting because I'm going to end up actually downshifting on this. I don't think Paul Menard has really anything to worry about. I think Paul Menard is performing about where he needs to perform for the Wood Brothers. Now, the Wood Brothers have not really been a team that's going to run top five, top ten every week. They haven't been that for some time now. Uh, but Paul Menard is giving them a, giving them runs that show that, yeah, they can. Paul Menard is putting it in top 15, top 10 almost every week. You know, he's qualifying well. He's running well. He's, you know, I constantly look where Menard's running. Okay, well, look, he's all right, top 15 usually, you know, most of the time. Then he ends up getting top 10 for a little bit. Sometimes he'll fall out here and there, but you know, I don't, I think Paul Menard is a fine driver. He's learned a lot. He's done a really good job. Um, he, he made the chase with, or the playoffs with, with RCR. And I think he needed to leave RCR because I don't think RCR was, I think RCR was a sinking ship when he left it. And I think it, I don't think it's a sinking ship now. It's, you know, been patched up and fixed, but, but Menard made the right choice when he left was to leave that, the, the 27. And, you know, go to the 21, and the 21 is going to, he's going to have a lot more success there. I think he's paired with some guys that, that are better suited for him. I think he's better suited for the Wood Brothers. He's impressed me the, the past two years. He's just straight up impressed me uh, with the Wood Brothers, and I think, uh, you know, unless Paul wants to step aside and call it a day, because, you know, he's been running, you know, in NASCAR for o- almost 20 years now. He's been running full-time in the Cup for over 10 years. Um, you know, if he wants to, to call it a day, I think he could retire on a high note, but I still think Paul Menard has plenty of winning left to do, you know, and I still think he's going to get a second win. I still think he's going to make the playoffs again. You know, I, if he doesn't, he doesn't, but I have no reason to believe right now that Paul Menard can't have success and won't have success. 
You know, I know that there's good young guys that are coming through, but is Austin Sindrick going to do any better than Paul Menard? I don't think so. Is Cole Custer going to do better than Paul Menard? Yeah, probably, but I don't think Cole Custer is going to go to uh, the Wood Brothers. You know, I think if Penske actually had a good guy in their pipeline, then maybe, maybe, yeah, sure, I'd probably give that, say, Paul Menard should be worried, but I don't think Austin Sindrick has shown me yet that he's ready for Cup, and if anything, he's better than Menard. So I'm going to say that, you know, and I don't even think it's a sponsorship deal because Menard's clearly sponsors whoever they want. I mean, they sponsor Brandon Jones, and he runs for a completely different team and a completely different manufacturer. So, I mean, even I think even if Menard didn't have Menards, I don't think it matters because Wood Brothers has Motocraft, Ford Motocraft, on their car every week anyway. So, you know, I, I don't think sponsorship's a big player. I think it's just a matter of Menard, just if he runs better, a little bit better, starts getting top tens, I think he'll be fine. I think he, I think at that point he'll have nothing to worry about. All right, so now that we've talked about Paul Menard, and we that leads to a good segue into the Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series round at Kentucky, and holy cow, I'm excited to talk about this. So, good weather for NBC and NASCAR for the Cup Series as Kurt Busch outdueled his younger brother Kyle in overtime to capture his first victory of the season and 31st overall. The win was Chevrolet's fourth win in 2019. Uh, they'd only had four victories all last season, and this is the first win for Chip Ganassi's team since September of 2017 when Kyle Larson won at Richmond. Larson even finished fourth in this race. It is Chevrolet's first victory at Kentucky Speedway in the Speedway's ninth cup race. Resport starts where premium as track position was at the highest of the premiums. Joey Logano looked as if he had the best car to move around early in the race. But tires didn't matter as long as you had fresh ones, which is big. Big again. Woohoo! Uh, some, a little, a little, you know, tire dig. Make fresh tires matter more. You know, stuff like that. That's what we've been harping on. We like that. It looked like lifting was required for most of, in turns one and two. Maybe even some braking there. So some really good indicators of, for this package. You know, and I, I wanted to talk about, you know, this package was pretty, pretty darn good. You know, track Pacific packages are necessary. I know it might not be cost effective, but if you're looking at the overall long-term health of the series and product, this is what we need to be doing. You know, we cannot be using this package at Loudon. We shouldn't be. But we, by all means, are free to use this at Kentucky. You know, this is all good and fine. This was a fantastic package. I loved it. I enjoyed it very much. The racing was great. The finish was great. You know, I, I thought it was a good race. You know, for Kentucky standards, which I had kind of written this race off, before it even began, I, I thought, ah, this is going to be bad. Why do I even bother watching this? And it turns out, hey, it's actually pretty darn good. What did you think of the race, Josh? Despite tires, you know, it seemed like to me, as long as you had two fresh ones, at least two fresh ones, you were able to do something, which doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I mean, you know, two tires, you had a clear advantage over zero tires, but four tires didn't necessarily give you an advantage over two. Other than that... You know, there was racing on the track. They got the, uh, mentioned the PJ1 earlier, they got the PJ1 in the right spot. So that allowed for, uh, you know, good maneuvering of the track, which was always a surprise to me that Joey was able to dive down into the corners, particularly early in the run in turns one and two, and make it stick and have a better run and exit off the corner than guys who went through the PJ1. Um, you know, the first couple stages were good, um, and then it kind of got a little snooze at the beginning, at the end, but... Uh, People stay off Twitter because, you know, if you're feeling complaining on, on Twitter about this race, you're like, ah, this race is boring. 
or this race is, you know, people are going to say it was a good race because of the last two laps and, and Kurt Busch beat Kyle Busch. Yeah. There's going to be people who believe that. But overall, this was the best Kentucky race, I think, ever. Um, this race, um, I have my own feelings about it and, and, and it being on the schedule. Um, but it, 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 like you, I think I was pleasantly surprised from it. Um, there there it just kind of everything added up right. If this race was running the day, thank goodness it's not. It'd be completely different. This is a night race, uh, and rightfully so. Um, and and just <sighs> things happen when they need to happen. It's, it's kind of we needed this. NASCAR needed this because I think I'm sure there are people in the industry who were worried about this race because they know um, that this race has definitely not been a popular one. In, in recent in, in really its entire existence, um, I don't know. Were you were you pumped to see it get on the schedule back in 2011, Rob? I mean, I thought it was kind of cool when it came on the schedule. I mean, I didn't hate it. I mean, I understand why some people would were upset about it, but me, I I didn't hate it. I thought it was like, all right, new track. How often do we get to see this? Very, you know, we don't get to see new tracks that we run at very often. You know, we don't have NASCAR doesn't really have that that leeway to, to make a new track like that kind of happen. So I thought it was kind of cool as a novelty in 2011, but I think as the race went on, it became very clear to me, especially after they repaved it. That's kind of when I was like, all right, this is kind of point. All right, we've, we've used up, you know, our, our, our fun factor for this race. You know, the nostalgia is gone. I shouldn't say nostalgia. The, the novelty is gone. You know, now it's time. Let's, let's do something else. Let's, go somewhere else let's not go here but yeah i thought the race overall was pleasantly surprised and i like what you said here you know stay off of twitter i've been doing that last several races and i have found myself to enjoy have enjoyed the races a lot better yeah i think you know it's like anything else in life i think twitter is just such a small speck of people but it's it's you know it's just like you say something on there and someone's going to disagree with you it's actually it's going to be probably more people um, you know, we could have had the, you know, there's people who didn't like the two, the past two super speedway races. They're not plate races anymore. The past two super speedway races, how you couldn't like those. I don't know. Did you not like Chase Elliott winning, um, in, in April? And did you not like it? The race not being restarted in, in Daytona? Okay. No one was happy that that didn't happen uh, or that that's the way it ended, but it's the way it happened. But the racing was good. You can't discount the finish or you know, this is this is this is kind of tough, maybe for some people to admit, and, and myself included. But you know, preconceived notions of, of, of a race. I didn't think this race was going to be any good, despite what we saw at Chicago Land under the lights and in Kansas under the lights. I didn't think this race was going to play out very well because of the two different corners. But it actually it worked well, and like you said, track specific packages. Um, I'm hoping that with with kind of the idea that NASCAR is throwing around of having kind of plug in parts and and um, spec parts for the next generation car that that we can bring back track specific packages. So, um yeah, I just I was surprised. Uh, I will admit it was a good race. Um I it's not that not, not difficult for me to admit. I want to see good racing and I want to see the racing improve and I think overall, for sure, 2019's been an improvement over 2018. So, the, just before we move on to the next one, you know, the, the playoff picture Everyone who needed a good day had a good day in the points, except Jimmy Johnson. So you made your gains really on Jimmy Johnson because 
in between 13th and 18th are only separated by 42 points. So Kyle Larson in 13th, Daniel Suarez in 18th. That is, I mean, maximum points in a NASCAR race is 60. So you don't even have a max points day to give if you're Kyle Larson. Um, I think, you know, he's a guy who could go out and win one of these next few races. Um, he's shown that, and he just team might just went out and won. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, Larson Suarez, Boyer even, who needed a good run, Eric Jones, and Newman. They all had good days. Um, so pleasant to see different names up in the top. That's always good to see. And it doesn't have to be first place like it was last week. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is a good race. So, uh IndyCar Series Racing, NTT IndyCar Series Racing in Toronto. What, why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Rob? Yeah, we had a, an IndyCar race here in Toronto as well. Uh, Simon Pagano wins the Honda in, Indy Toronto at Exhibition Place after holding off Scott Dixon in the final stages of the race after battling lap traffic and losing a seven-second lead, which was crazy to see. Just But, but you know, they said that on, on the radio broadcast I was listening to, too, because I was heading up to visit my mom. It was her birthday. Happy birthday again, Mom. Belated. Because uh, I know my mom's listening. Uh, she always does. And so, uh, but anyway, and I was, I was driving up there, and they were talking about how much time he was losing, but then also noting that he was passing him, passing lap cars, at points in time where Dixon could not pass the lap cars, mm-hmm. which I think helped him immensely. Which helped him get the win. He would, he caught the lap cars at the right point, and, and Dixon was held up for a few corners, particularly there in like the last few corners of the track where it's basically the S's of Toronto, and, and that is not, not, you can't pass there, not easily anyways. No, yeah, it looked like, you know, Pagano was always catching him towards turn three, which was one of the best, or turn one, you know, which is two of the best passing zones on the track. So, there were first lap troubles for Ray Hall and Ryan hunter Ray when Will Power makes an extremely bold move into turn eight. Matthias Leist runs into the back of Marcus Erickson, spoiling both both of their days, and Marco Andretti ended up doing a 360, lighting it up and getting back on, on track. Which, if it wasn't for maybe a couple other drivers having a more, most outstanding performance, I think that might have gotten at least uh, the trick of the week. Yeah, Marco... Uh... Marco is hopefully not going to quit his day job anytime soon, but if he does, he can be a very good stunt racer, I'm sure. Uh, Takuma Sato's great run was spoiled with engine-slash-drivetrain issues when the back of his car completely caught fire. You know, and we were and we have the uh, IndyCar race on the TV here right now, I, I and I forgot about this when I was typing up. He had a little bit of an overzealous uh, fireman or, or with, the, with the fire extinguisher there, and the team's telling him, no, no, don't, and then he gets like an extra squirt in on a spite. I'm like, dude, come on, they just want to put the fire out with water so they don't have to clean everything off. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, and speaking of Sato, too, I mean, let's not forget about the uh, incident with Bourdais he had on in, in practice uh, where it, it looked like, you know, Someone cut somebody else off, and then in in the pits, someone went after someone else. So, ah, that was interesting. It's nice, you know, there's something that you don't see in IndyCar a lot, and and Robin Miller wrote about this on Racer.com. You don't see, like, he says, like, fighting's reserved for stock car drivers, and he named a couple of, like, sprint car guys as well. It's nice to see some guys in in IndyCar get an altercation, which is just strange to say. Yeah, especially those two, you know. I could see, you know, someone like... I don't take this the wrong way, but I could totally see James Hinchcliffe going up and punching someone, but I don't know if I would see either Sato or Bourdais do anything like that because I feel like they're two of the more level-headed guys in the in the garage area. Um, so, it, I don't know. That was it, that was just interesting, but it looks like they, they made up, and Bourdais finished okay, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, but in terms of the 
championship. Simon Pagino cuts his deficit to points leader Joseph Newgarden from 61 to 39 points, and Dixon cuts uh, his points deficit from Alexander Rossi from 94 to 86, or yeah, excuse me, championship, yeah, championship from 7 to 4. So uh, Rossi said he was pretty happy with the points day, but uh, Pagino cutting into that deficit is... Is pretty big, so the points championship in IndyCar right now is really starting to heat up, and it'll be really interesting to see what happens here in the later stages, especially going to the Oval at Iowa. It'll be really interesting to see what ends up happening. I'm so glad that race is finally going to be on a, on a Saturday night again, because boy, have I missed Iowa being at a night race. And and you know the other end of that championship battle is power. I was thinking to myself right when he made that move, I'm like, this isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, was he? Not thinking about the championship picture. I mean, you had a you have an eighty you know five lap race ahead of you, and on lap one, it's like. I, I, side note, we'll talk about this after the show. But I watched some i i racing highlight videos. What do each one of those guys say at the beginning of the race? Don't try to win the race on lap one. Man, Lance, what will power? I don't know if he tried to win the race on lap one. What are you really thinking? But he now he lost points. You know, he was just um, ninety eight points, I believe, back from from the uh, from New Garden. And now he's 128. That's the wrong direction to go with six races left. Yeah, it really is. But it'll be interesting, and I'm looking forward to talking about that championship all the way until the bitter end. Uh, so now we're going to move on to our our next segment, which is our newest segment, actually. it's We're going to call it the Best of the Rest Roundup, where I'm going to talk about all those weird, obscure uh, racing series that I watch in the meantime, and Josh is just going to chill here and learn a couple of things. So the first thing is Arca raced at Elko Speedway, where Chandler Smith picked up his first win in seven starts in 2019. Ty Gibbs finished second in his fifth top two finish of 2019. Michael Self retains the points lead with a 35-point advantage over Brett Holmes, 60 points over Travis Braden, and 85 over Christian Eckes. Arca is uh, it's a pretty good race overall. Uh, Haley Deegan, I was watching that. She was doing eh, okay, I guess, you know, for the most part. Still struggling, I guess, in, in, in ARCA competition. But it was a little bit odd to see an ARCA race run up against a NASCAR race. But, uh, you know, once the NASCAR race ended, the ARCA race still had about 100 laps left. So I was still able to flip over to that. Uh, so it was pretty pretty good there. Now we're going to move on here to uh, the Formula 2. Um, Formula 2, some interesting news over the weekend. Uh, was Premo Racing driver Sean Galeo withdrew from the weekend after being assessed a grid penalty penalty in race one for uh, impeding another driver during the um, during uh, practice and qualifying. Uh, now, Galeo said he withdrew on, quote, principle, but really didn't expand on the reasons why he further withdrew from the race. So there were only 19 cars that ran uh, both Formula 2 races this weekend, which was rather interesting. Um, race one, Luca Giotto wins an easy race from P2 on the grid. Jack Aitken wins race two from P5 on the grid. Uh, BWT Arden struggled for pace massively. Uh, Antoine Hubert and Tatiana Calderon both struggled, which is odd to see both cars struggling as much as they did. Typically, Hubert is the one doing well, but actually Calderon was on pace with Hubert, uh, around this time, which was... Really kind of nervous. It's really kind of nervous days down there at the Arden machines. Calderon was more like, after the race, pretty pretty much like, yeah, props to these guys for trying to figure out the pace issues because we're not sure what's going on, but hopefully we'll have it figured out by uh, Hungary. So uh, F2 will race at Hungary. F3 will uh, not, I believe. Um, Mahavir Ragunathan back from his ban. Uh, you know, 
I, I guess we got to talk to talk about him. He came back from his ban, his one race ban, uh, promptly finished 15th and 18th in race one and two respectively. The last car running in each respective race. I believe he was one lap down in race two as well. So, I guess if you wanted to hear your update on Mahavir Ragunathan, there's your update. Uh, we're going to move on now to F3. In race one, Yuri Vips, the Estonian driver with Red Bull backing, um, holds off a hard-charging Yihan Daruvala to win in incredible style. I mean, he held him off. I mean, he had probably destroyed his tires. And Daruvala was chasing him for about the entirety of the race, just trying DRS. He had DRS, and Yuri Vips didn't have DRS. He pushed him and pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. And for, I mean... Give, I mean, Yuri Vips drove an incredible race, but it was not the same for him in race two as Vips started eighth after, you know, reverse grid pole, which means he won, so he starts eighth for the next race, and he just had a poor start to that race, did not do very well. As a result, Leonardo Pulcini passes 17-year-old Liam Lawson in the, in the closing stages, so after about, oh, I say about the 13th lap or so out of a 20-lap race, so I call that the closing stages because it was past halfway. Um... To take the win, uh, Robert Schwartzman passed uh, Liam Lawson as well to finish, uh, you know, in, in second. But uh, Liam Lawson, you know, that was his best, that was his first podium of the season. He's 17 years old. He's the youngest driver in the field. And he drove a spectacular race. He had some great defensive moves there on Pulcini. Um, American Logan Sargent finished 13th in race two after starting from the back of the grid, I believe, in 28th. Again, there are 38 or excuse me, 30 cars in Formula 3, the top 8 score points, and uh, Logan Sargent is indeed, if you're curious, the younger brother of former NASCAR competitor Dalton Sargent, and he currently races for the Carlin team. Now, uh, in other news, I'm going to talk about Super Formula very quickly before I move on, um, because Patricio Ward made his first ever Super Formula start this weekend, and if you're interested, you can watch the race on YouTube, I believe the channel is called Let's Go Racing. Uh, I believe if you also have a motorsport.com or motorsport.tv subscription, you can watch it too. I believe that's like $4 a month, but you can watch it for free on YouTube. Um, Pato Award uh, finished uh, 14th one lap down in the wet weather at Fuji. So pretty much a, another baptism by fire for Patricio Award here. I mean, last week he was in an underpowered MP mo motorsports car, <laughs> or last two weeks ago, excuse me, he was an underpowered MP motorsports car. And uh, really never had driven an F2 before, never had driven on Pirelli tires, never had driven with DRS, no idea what anything these things are. Um, and, and now this race, he said he, quote, just wanted to finish. <laughs> so it was a, another rough race for Patricio Award, but, you know, he's just learning. He's trying everything he can to learn these cars and hopefully have a successful future here uh, in the next upcoming years. So... Those are that's the best of the rest. We're done with that. Now let's move on to our bet outstanding performance. Uh, I wanted to give this to Cole Custer, but uh, I feel like I could do that almost every weekend I, if I wanted to. Um, so I'm instead going to give a big shout out to Felix Rosenquist, who qualified third and finished fifth in the uh, Honda Indy Toronto. And Felix really needed a run like that. He's had an inconsistent start to the season. He's had some pretty good starts. But uh, then some pretty good, bad, pretty bad finishes here and there. Some good finishes, some bad finishes. Ovals has really been his struggling point, I think. Um, but uh, he, uh, and, and it has been about three years since he ran these kinds of tracks. So he's not really been over here in the United States f for a while. So you know, but he did win both Toronto races in 2016 when he was in Indy Lights. So um, 
definitely he knew that this track a little bit better than others and it's uh, really good to see Felix having good top five runs with this because I know you know when you're teammates with Scott Dixon comparatively you're gonna look bad unless you're Dave Dario Frank Keaty or Dan Weldon uh but uh you know I thought he did a pretty good job there and uh hopefully it will help him build momentum for the future so Josh who was your outstanding performance of the weekend well Paul Menard <laughs> My dog done a little bit earlier, but it was really Paul Menard. Um, finished 11th. He ran up up front a couple times. He you know, ran as high as third. Um, you know, like like I said, you know, he answered some questions about his future of this team. But you know, he ran really well. Um, he had uh, the fifth most green flag passes um, at 118, and tied for second with the most quality green flag passes with 65. Um, you know, that, that to me just shows kind of the car he had and some circumstances didn't play out. Uh, you know, I failed to see where he was on the final restart there, which shook up a lot of people. Joey Logano was leading at the final restart and came home seventh, but you know, still, you know, it's, it's his third best finish of the year. He's got two top, uh, tens, uh, back in the spring. So, you know, he kind of backed up what he said. Um, to the media before the race this weekend, and that was mine. You know, I was, you know, I, I didn't mean to dog on them. I don't know if anyone got that impression, but it is good to see them and the Wood Brothers. You know, it's the Wood Brothers, man, one of the most historic teams in NASCAR. You know, right, right along there with, you know, Petty Enterprises. You know, these this team needs to get back to victory lane. I haven't been in victory lane since uh, 2017 with Ryan Blaney. So yeah, I mean, it's just. It, Paul, it was good to see them running is basically what I'm trying to say. And and he kind of, and the stats backed it up. Sometimes the finish doesn't tell the whole story. We all know that. Um, but, uh, yeah, good day for Paul there. Yep. And uh, now with that uh, feature ended, we're going to move on to, again, one of my favorite segments of the show, the featured racetrack, and it is one of my favorite lost racetracks. One of my favorite in the entire world, and I'm so excited for what Josh has to to show us today. Josh, thank you again for compiling all of these stats. Um, he does a wonderful, wonderful job on this. Josh, what is our featured racetrack of the week? Well, it's one of the jewels that have been lost, and again, it's one of my favorites. Uh, it was located about 40 miles from downtown Los Angeles, Ontario Motor Speedway, the Big O. Ontario, California. So no, not not Ontario, Canada, which I originally thought is where it was when I was younger. <laughs> but no, it was it's Ontario, uh, California. There, so it's it's just west of where the I-15 and I-10 uh, freeways interchange. And at the time when it was completed, it was one of the most state-of-the-art facilities when it opened at a cost of twenty-five million dollars. Uh, it was originally proposed by Kermit Pollock in 1956, and it was originally going to be called Los Angeles International Motor Speedway. Um, it was purposely modified after the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. An initial brown, groundbreaking took place on November 1st, 1966. Less than four years later, a 2.5-mile oval and a 3.19-mile road course and a quarter-mile drag strip were constructed and is the only facility to be able to host NASCAR, American Open Wheel, Formula One, and NHRA races. So that's pretty neat. Um, in front of 180,000 spectators, Jim McElrath won the first ever race at Ontario. Um, it, it, was, it was held on September 6, 1970. The California 500 was a USAC champ car race. 33 cars started with seven being sent home after qualifying. 
only seven cars were left running after the race. Everyone else, including the race dominator, Al Unser, had dropped out due to crashes, overheating, or other mechanical issues. It was also McElderis' fifth and final victory of his career. So that was a pretty, you know, winning an inaugural race your final time. I'm down with that. Um, between USAC and CART, 22 official races were held across 11 years. A few of those were heat races, but they're still consider- considered official in points pain. Um, AJ Foyt won five of the sanctioned races at Ontario, and Bobby Unser won four times. NASCAR, again, they would have run uh, Ontario Motor Speedway as well from 1971 to 72, and again, 74 to 1980. AJ Foyt showcased his two-and-a-half-mile oval skills, winning the first two NASCAR races at the Big O. For the Wood Brothers and a Mercury in both races, at that time, the race was named the Miller High Life 500. And the inaugural running at Ontario was NASCAR's 1,000th race. And from what I could see, it wasn't reported a whole lot that this was the 1,000th NASCAR race. I'm like, what? That's not a big deal? Okay, whatever. ABC, ABC Sports uh, telecast the second half of the 1972 running across the nation live and received a 12.3 Nielsen rating. That was pretty good for back in the day. Um, after his sabbatical in 1973, Ontario returned to NASCAR in... 1974, and again, like I mentioned just moments ago, to 1980, uh, it was a 500-mile race again, and it was um, the season finale. So the season finale was held from Riverside for a number of years in the Inland Empire, but before that, it was in Ontario, just down the road. Uh, Bobby uh, Allison and Benny Parsons would match Foyt's two victories, with Parsons winning the final two races. So some nitbits about Ontario. It was a first racetrack with sensors in the pavement for scoring at a cost of $5 million uh, was for you know speeds, lap times, and margins. The back stretch was approximately 30 feet higher than the front stretch in elevation for viewing purposes of the 140,000-seat uh, front stretch grandstands. The speaker system had 28,000 watts. That's 8,000 more than Cape Kennedy. Remember, they launched rockets there, and you can hear the loudspeaker a little bit. And uh, that was it was double that of Indianapolis back in the day. Um, and the short shoots were also banked four degrees, so therefore they had faster speeds in Indianapolis. Um, one of the last final things was Ontario wanted to host a Formula One race, uh, but the FIA wouldn't sanction the facility. So the Questor Grand Prix was held on March 28, 1971, and was not only open to American Formula 5000 cars, but also F1 cars. Mario Andretti won that race, um, which was run in two heats, and Sir Jackie Stewart finished second in both uh, both were in Formula One machines. Uh, the Formula Fun 5000 cars just weren't able to keep up with the Formula One cars. They were not aerodynamically as stable in the corners, and therefore giving the F1 cars an advantage. Uh, Ron Gravel was the first uh, Formula One 5000 car to finish uh, the highest, and it was classified in seventh. Um, a 72 Formula One race was planned, but never took place. So what happened to Ontario? It unfortunately met the same fate as its neighbor, Riverside, 19 miles to the southeast. Property values and suburban development were the causes. When land was originally purchased in uh, in, in, in the uh, 50s, or excuse me, late 60s, acres per cost, a cost per acre was about $7,500. It had risen to over $150,000 per acre. So Chevron eventually would acquire the land, and today a major business park part of Ontario Mills Mall and Toyota Arena, home of the Agua Caliente Clippers, a G League team for those of you who don't know that, now occupy the land. Parts of the Turn 3 embankment remain, and as and it is the really only reminder that there ever was a two-and-a-half-mile speedway um, there that once stood. It's, it's 
pretty pretty sad. Um, one of the like mentioned before, it was one of the jewels that have been lost, and um, sad to see. Uh, today's featured racetrack history was provided by RacingReference.info. Lost Road Courses by Martin Rudeau. The History of America Speedways, Past and Present by Alan E. Brown. NASCAR The Complete History by Greg Fielden. And Motorsport Magazine, uh, October 1970. So, man, what do, you, what do you guys say? I know there's probably plenty you want to. Yeah, I, I learned a lot from that. Uh, I mean, I knew a lot of that. I especially knew about the Quester Grand Prix and things like that because I always thought that was the coolest thing. I've always wanted to really kind of see what an onboard lap would look like at Ontario's road course because I've never actually like seen like the race a race there I've seen plenty of archived foot archival footage of the rate of races on the oval but I've never seen like what it was like on the road course and but but the what I've seen of the road course looks like it's a pretty darn good course you know like they did a pretty good job on it um you know they they made a good course with what they had um, you know, which is real, real, real nice to see. Uh, and, and, you know, it's really sad that Ontario had to, to go, um, because I feel like it could still be a massive draw today. I feel like today, I mean, the, the, the things you could host there, especially being so close to California, Los Angeles, I mean, you know, it, it would just be a beautiful, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful track back then. I mean, even you look at pictures from when it was when it was still standing in, in, in 1975, I guess, is, is if I'm picking a random year, it looks beautiful. I mean, I know they call it the Indianapolis of the West, and you mentioned that in there, and I, I you wrote it in here, but you didn't mention it, and I wanted to say that because I always thought that was such a cool thing where they call it the Indianapolis of the West. Like, Indianapolis was such a big deal that when they made a similar track, they just said, all right, this is the Indianapolis of the West, and stock cars ran there, and it makes me kind of think, like, would stock cars have put on racing like that, that it was as good as it was at Ontario, like, if they had run at Indianapolis in the 70s, you know, it kind of makes you wonder something like that, because you can really get an idea of what it would have been like, mm-hmm. um, and so, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm so sad, but I've seen, like, um, videos, like, urban exploration videos of what what's left of Ontario, so you can see, uh, there's a guy that ran around, and he kind of found some of the banking for, like, turn three, I think it was, where, like, you could see where they propped up all the dirt for the embankment, um, and then you could see also where they flattened it when they tore everything down. So, you know, that's that's really what I have to add there, but just Ontario was a beautiful track. I wish it didn't have to go the way it was because, you know, it would have definitely have been a bucket list thing for me personally. You know, if I was born in, you know in the 50s and had an opportunity to have gone and seen uh Ontario Motor Speedway in my 20s I definitely would have done that but uh unfortunately I'm I was born in 95 so that that, that kind of kept me out of that opportunity so. and just just and it's just uh just to think we had two great facilities we already mentioned Riverside a few episodes ago but man those could could you imagine just going to a track like NASCAR you know for me NASCAR going to the track that's that's 19 miles apart from each other at two ends of the year. I think it'd be great, you know. Um, and, and we posed a question. We won't we won't elaborate on it anymore. But we asked the question, you know, would they be on the schedule today? How would how would the trajectory of other courses be included on schedules? And would the other courses be built? Auto Club wouldn't be built. Um, but it was state of the art. Um, just today, if you could imagine, just the urban growth, and it's what everyone would want. 
You know, you, you had restaurants and hotels all around this, this facility that could have been built, and um, you wouldn't have to travel very far to go to a race. You know, you, you needed a hotel. You quite honestly just maybe walk across a pedestrian street across uh, I-15 or I-10, and you were there. So, yeah, it's, it is definitely, like I said, one of the jewels that have been lost. Um, and uh, it's all just but memory now and an embankment. That's it. So, what do we got coming up? What's in the windshield for us, Rob? Yeah, before we end today's show, let's look take a look here at what's in the windshield. So next week, we've got NASCAR Monster Energy Cup Series and Xfinity Series at New Hampshire on July 21st and the 20th for their only trip to the Magic Mile. Unfortunately, I kind of... I kind of, I'm still kind of sad to see, you know, only one race at Loudoun, but both of those races will be on NBCSN. The NTT IndyCar Series finally returns to uh, Saturday Night Racing at Iowa Speedway. That will also be on NBCSN. And just to shake things up a little bit here, we've got the Arkham Menard Series coming also to Iowa. Uh, uh, and they race on Friday night, and Josh says, here, we can watch it on Mav TV. So finally something not on NBCSN. So I'm going to be able to, thankfully, uh, Use more of that Fubo. Yeah, seriously, Fubo is great. It has M- Mav TV, and I, I've never looked back. I have not looked back since I got it. So, thank you. Um, I wish I had Mav TV, or otherwise I'd be watching that Arca race at Iowa. I, I can I can record it, and we can watch right, it go. next week. It. There we go. We can watch it for you next week. So, All right, so, well, ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrap from here in Indianapolis. Join Josh and I next week as we recap IndyCar and NASCAR racing from the Hawkeye and Granite States. But before we go, make sure, again, you join us on Twitter. Josh is at Roller underscore zero one, R-O-L-L-E-R underscore zero one, and I am at R-Peters33, R-P-E-E-T-E-R-S-33. Uh, and again, remember, you can always tweet at tweet at us uh, whenever you want about questions about the show, comments about the show, anytime you want. Thank you all for the support and listening to us today. We hope you join us next week for our 10th episode. For Josh Roller, I'm Rob Peters, and this was the Racing with Robin Roller podcast. Have an excellent week, everybody.